Commissioner, Chairman of the City Planning Commission, and Chairman of the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, disrupted the streets of New York as he saw fit, with little regard for the impact his plans had on the lives of its citizens. You have to break eggs to make an omelet, was his standard reply to his increasingly vocal critics. As was his style, when either obstacles or opponents got in his way, he outmaneuvered or, if necessary, ran roughshod over them. Moses had spent much of the previous 40 years molding and transforming New York to fit his own personal vision of a modern metropolis. He built a vast network of highways, bridges, parkways, public pools, playgrounds, beaches, and state power projects while clearing huge tracts of land with federal funds, sometimes destroying neighborhoods in the process. Casting a shadow over his beloved New York, at least as large as the Manhattan skyline, Moses served as an unelected government employee under seven governors and six mayors, and for nearly half a century was an inevitable fact of life in Gotham, as much as death, taxes, and rush hour traffic. After Kennedy's motorcade pulled up to the building, the president stepped out of his limousine and greeted Moses, with whom he had maintained a cordial connection since his days as a Massachusetts senator. The youthful Kennedy, who had removed his heavy overcoat despite the frosty chill, was a striking contrast to the graying bureaucrats who had gathered to meet him, like the fair's U.S. commissioner, Norman K. Winston, a real estate developer and close ally of Moses, or the dour mayor of New York, Robert F. Wagner, Jr., described by Norman Mailer as plump, groomed, blank, in the pages of Esquire. Regardless of his host's combative and autocratic style, Kennedy knew that Moses got things done. Certainly, Kennedy, ever the political pragmatist, admired Moses' ability to survive and dominate New York's cutthroat political system. Side by side on the stage set up for the groundbreaking, surrounded by the four-and-a-half-acre construction site of the U.S. Federal Pavilion, they now sat. On the left was Kennedy, the only man on the stage not wearing a fedora or an overcoat, or apparently under the age of 50, his youthful image and forward-looking new frontier policies seemed to embody the hopeful idealism that was still at the heart of American life. Beside him, the elderly Moses personified bare-knuckled power as New York's Machiavellian master builder. When it was Kennedy's turn to speak, he rose to a podium bearing the presidential seal and delivered a short speech that was a peaceful call to arms, as his words turned to frosty breaths in the cold December air, the president reminded the crowd that the upcoming World's Fair represented a chance for us in 1964 to show 75 million people from all over the world what kind of a people we are and what kind of a country we are and what is coming in the future. That is what a World's Fair should be about, and the theme of this World's Fair, peace through understanding, is most appropriate in these years of the 60s. I want the people of the world to visit this fair and all the various exhibits of our American industrial companies and the foreign companies who are most welcome, and to come to the American exhibit, the exhibit of the United States, and see what we have accomplished through a system of freedom. Kennedy's trip to the fairgrounds was a welcome respite. The fair's peace through understanding theme was more than just an idealistic slogan to the young president. Two months earlier, the Cold War had almost exploded into an atomic showdown after the Soviet Union installed nuclear missiles in Cuba, only 90 miles off American shores. It was a terrible gamble for Nikita Khrushchev, 
the unpredictable Soviet premier, who had the missiles sent to Cuba after asking his advisors, why not throw a hedgehog into the United States' pants? For nearly two weeks in October, President Kennedy secretly met with a group of senior advisors and top military brass, poring over the photographic evidence courtesy of U-2 spy planes. The president and his men explored every option, including a preemptive military strike against Fidel Castro's communist regime. Ultimately, Kennedy dismissed the war cry of his trigger-happy generals and Southern Democrats like Senator Richard B. Russell of Georgia and J. William Fulbright of Arkansas. Instead, he opted for a naval blockade of Cuban waters, preferring to call it a quarantine to strike a less confrontational tone to prevent more nuclear warheads from arriving on the island. At the same time, he amassed more than 100,000 troops in Florida, the largest invasion force since the Second World War, just in case. When the crisis ended...